Welcome to Pathfinder Academy. Class is now in session. Here are your professors, Caleb and Christian. Good morning, class. You may be seated. Today's lesson is Pathfinder 204, House Rules. This is part of our 200 series all about GMing the game. I think every DM eventually makes their own house rules, whether it be generally in all games that they play or for a specific campaign, sometimes you change some of the rules to fit the atmosphere. But as it is, I think almost everyone can find something in Pathfinder that they say, I don't really like how that works. Let, let's run it this way. If you don't know what a house rule is, house rules, you stop on free parking, you get whatever money came from taxes. It's a rule. It's not in Monopoly, but people just do it. It's a rule you make up that you play with just your friends. I think house rules are really healthy for the game. I think it demonstrates an understanding of the game and a direction that you want to move it toward. It kind of has a DM style associated with certain house rules. Maybe it demonstrates someone who doesn't understand the rules and thinks something's too complicated, so they're going to make it easier. Which um is totally reasonable. I think I have a few things that I do like that. Right. Well, we're just going to go back and forth and we're going to talk about the house rules that we have. And then we're going to yell at each other saying they're stupid and why we don't have them. And then murder each other and the episode will be over. <laughs> and so will be the whole series. And should then, do, then ha- who up? The real question you have to ask yourself is, who uploaded this? <laughs> should we do the outro now? Then? <laughs> yes, just so they can put it in. <laughs> Alright, I'll start with one of mine. Uh, I have a house rule. I give all my players a uh, a feat called Improved Shoe Materials for free. And uh, Shoe Materials is a feat in Pathfinder where if the material cost of casting a spell is one gold or less, you don't need it anymore. So you don't have to get the ball spiders and different things to, to go cast your spells. Uh, I give people, because I find that one gold or less, if it's only a few spells cost something that's one gold or less. So I kind of bump it up to 100 gold or less. And I have another feat that they can pick anytime they can have a feat called Greater Improved Issue Materials, which is a thousand or less without needing that component. Now, I actually haven't had a lot of people, uh, after I made this rule, use this system. So I don't know if that's maybe a little imbalanced. Maybe I should change it to 10 and 100 gold. Uh, but so far, it's been okay. Now that you mention it, um, I don't explicitly write this down in my house rules, but I think I give all my players or I consider all of my spellcasters as having regular Ashoo materials because I simply don't like keeping track of the minutia of, do you have bat guano for your right. fireball? Oh, forgot about our whole bat guano thing. <laughs> I forget that, that all mages, that we figured out that all mages are like four-year-old kids that are just throwing poop at people. Exactly. <laughs> I personally don't think I do the improved Ashoo materials, which is the 100 gold or less one. I think that might be a little too much because it probably isn't that bad. Mm-hmm. But I think if you have someone that actually plays a spellcaster and uses greater improved issue materials with a thousand gold or less, you're going to encounter some problems. Yeah, I'll have to keep an eye on that one. But I think uh, the concept is there that issue materials is something that people should get for free and even be a little bit better because it's just too much minutia. If you're playing a low magic campaign where you actually want to restrict magic users, I think it's fine right. to not do this. And there's some spells that are imbalanced if you don't spend. If you don't spend $1,000 worth of diamond dust, you know, you can cast restoration. Yeah, or how much is wish? Wish, I'm sure, is a lot of material component. You want to make sure that they can't just cast wish whenever they want, that they right. have to earn it in some way. What's one of yours? My biggest one is actually a set of feats that everyone gets for free. Okay. Uh, there's a set of feats for mostly for martial characters that basically every martial character ever is going to take at some point. They have to, just to scale in the game. It's how Pathfinder works. Those feats are power attack, 
and deadly aim, which are you take a penalty on your attack roll and you get a bonus on your damage roll. Basically, if you use melee weapons or if you use ranged weapons, you're going to use one of those two feats 100% of the time. Right. So I give all martial characters. I think I give all characters. I don't think I limit it to martial characters. But for the most part, when you're using weapons and not spells, you get those feats for free. Um, the entire list is power attack, deadly aim, weapon finesse for dexterity characters, combat expertise, because that is a prerequisite for everything. combat maneuvers, point blank shot and precise shot, because every range character ever has to take point point blank shot and precise shot yeah that they're the minus prerequisites four. for everything minus four is a rough thing just because p- players are playing the game and in melee for some reason p- point blank shot is a prerequisite for far shot which <laughs> makes no sense to me you've used the term before uh, uh feet tax uh, kind of explain what that means it means that there are some feats that are just there to serve as a stepping stone into the next level of power. They kind of are just taking up a slot because you have to take them. Right, you have and, to get it. And I like getting rid of those. Uh, similarly, I also combine all the improved combat maneuvers. I bunch all of them together into two different feats. All the feats that require combat expertise as a prerequisite, all the improved combat maneuver feats, they're all one grouping and all the combat maneuver feats improved like bull rush improved disarm or whatever it is are all under another grouping right and we and we tell you which ones are which in our martial combat episode we go over each of the combat maneuvers and which feat is the one that um improves that because i just find it weird that you have to put like three feats in to be good at just one combat maneuver yeah because that kind of shoes you into being a one-trick pony something we talked about in the player types and conflict episode you don't want to have things built into the game that make people worse players if i put all this stuff into trip i guess i gotta be tripping all the time otherwise it's not worth it exactly it gives you more options which you want as a martial character because you look at a spellcaster and they're like oh what spell am i gonna prepare to what am i gonna cast i got so many options whereas a martial character you're like "Mm, i'm gonna full round action (laughs) right at least i like this because it gives them a lot of options like ooh, this combat i can dirty trick someone maybe i can blind them and that will inhibit their abilities a lot or maybe i'll trip them this time keeping with the theme of feats i have uh, i've removed from selection the leadership feat if you know what the leadership feat is it's just a a feat that allows you to do some things when it comes with additional companions uh npcs non-player controlled characters and it's just something that's a little too complicated for me to want to deal with on top of everything else I'm dealing with. I'm willing to let somebody talk me out of it, come to me and say, I- I- I'm willing to handle this. I know how it works. I'm cool with that. But in general, I don't like it. I don't explicitly ban the feat, but I kind of go in with the pretense of if you take leadership feat, it's not the character you get from the feat isn't going to be someone following you around and accompanying you all the time in combat. It's kind of like someone who will do stuff behind the scenes, take care, like hold it down at home kind of thing. I don't, it's kind of a blatantly overpowered feat because for one feat, you get a whole nother character in your party. And that's just, it destroys the action economy. It makes the DM have to rebalance everything. Especially because whenever you have a pers- uh, one player controlling two elements in a combat, they can work together in ways that normally is more difficult. If me and you are different players in the middle of combat, I'm like, you run over there to help me get combat advantage, right? And we try to do that, or maybe you decide not to because you have another thing you're going to do. Mm-hmm. If I'm controlling two players, me and you, I'm controlling both of our players, I can just do whatever I want. Exactly. And it kind of removes like, well, how would he have known to do that? That kind of thing. Kind of an immersion ruiner. 
Like all these things we're saying are just stuff we do and they're suggestions and there's something to think about. But with the leadership one, I think that's something the vast majority of DMs home rule or ban in one way or another. So if you think of running a game and you haven't looked into it, look into what people do with leadership because that's actually a very, very common house rule. And uh, in our player types and conflict episode, you talked about a player who was very good, who used leadership. Maybe there's a couple problems, but used it pretty well. So listen to that for an example. A house rule I have is that you do not need to keep track of mundane ammunition. Regular crossbow bolts, regular arrows, maybe depending on the campaign, regular bullets, you do not have to keep track of in any capacity. Assume you have some, just don't try and fill a pit with all your arrows or anything like that. But if you have any kind of special ammunition, anything that is anything other than just plain ammunition, you have to keep track of. I actually have the same rule. I've never, I've never written it down. Uh, like I never thought about it, but I have the same rule. But I do have this caveat. Two things. One, if somebody's abusing it, if they're trying to fill up a pit with arrows, then I take that away from them and make them track it for the future. And two, there may be times, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this to my players, I will be um, holding you to what's on your character sheet for this uh, session or for the next two sessions because sometimes there's like some sort of like survival thing I want to do mm-hmm. and I want to have them kind of worry about I only have 10 shots and there's 20 monsters or whatever but I let them know ahead of time so they can go buy out whatever they need and not just caught off guard like I don't have any on my sheet because occasionally there's some cool things you can do with not having what uh, enough stuff kind of like games are like that I mean amnesia was so cool about the game is you one of the things so cool about the game is you can't attack the monsters you are limited in some way mm-hmm. so sometimes it's, it's interesting to do that yeah and also I just don't think keeping track of it I've seen people do other things with ammunition that I think are neat like they have like little index cards and they say like this is good for like X days of travel ammunition oh that's cool and then like you buy that every time you go back into town so instead of keeping track of an exact tally of how many arrows you have you say I have a quiver full of arrows this will last me this many sessions or this many in-game days until I have to get new ones that's really cool I like that I never thought of that that's clever um originally I had said uh the summoner archetypes are removed from play for my games because this is something that even Paizo's official play, which they call um, Pathfinder Society, do uh, because they're just imbalanced. Uh, they're overpowered. But ever since the book Unchained came out, I got rid of it and just blankly stated if a uh, class has been unchained, you have to use that one instead of its base class. And that take care. That takes care of the summer and all the other problems that occur with other classes. And that allows some summoner archetypes to be selected because there's a few that still work with the unchained. Guess which one's not? Rogue? Synthesis Summoner. Uh, not in there anymore. Oh, it's not at all? I don't think you can use that archetype with the new oh, Chain okay. Summoner. I actually, I don't ban Summoner, but I that's actually one of the classes where I will reserve the right to 100% audit your character before it enters the game. Because mm-hmm. Summoner, without, like, not even trying, without even thinking about it, you can accidentally completely break the game with Summoner. Okay. Have an absolutely invincible Eidolon or have, that's outshining the rest of the party while you're still a spellcaster. That's... So I don't ban the class, but I say, if you're going to play it, you have to intentionally make it not broken, and I reserve the right to completely audit that character. We should do another episode. Maybe we should do it for all the Unchained classes, why their base classes needed to be fixed, like we did with the Rogue, why the Summoner's OP. All right, Christian, let's have another guest. Christian, what do you think the name of that episode is? Which which episode? The one about Rogues. Rogues. What's the deal with the shifty guy in the back? (laughs) Incorrect. The problem with the rogues. We should do a whole series on that. All right. What's another one you have? Uh, This one involves healing uh, outside of combat. If you are in a safe space such as a camp, you're not necessarily in a town 
resting, but you're in, say, a camp or you're somewhere safe, you're not in the middle of a dungeon, and you sit down and you use wands or spells to heal yourself, you can take the average of those rolls. Instead of having to sit there and say, I'm going to use my Cure Light Wounds wand and start rolling D8s and adding them up, you can just multiply the average and then take that many charges away from your wand. I like that a lot. That's clever. I might steal that from you. If you are in a town or city, like you're in a very, very populated area and nothing's really happening, it's basically downtime, wands and such will heal you for the full amount. Oh, man, I, I need to think about that. That's really clever. I like that because I just, again, we want to filter out as much minutia as we can to get to the cool, fun stuff while we're all here. Exactly. That's one of the things. I don't have a fun going six plus three plus, oh, I hate adding numbers. <laughs> Add like 19 numbers together. I can't divide by one. I, I think of all the house rules I've implemented, that's the one my players have liked the most. That's good. Um, I use an alternate rule set that I think is either in the core rulebook right off the bat or maybe in the advanced player's guide. It's about cost of living where your players can play pay a tax and they get a benefit from it. Um, so, for example, let's say uh, you pay 10 gold a month. Then anything that's worth one gold or less, you can get for free. It just assumes that you can, like, find it in your house. So let's say I, spend t- I pay 10 gold a month for a nice little apartment, right? We can assume that I have a pair of scissors in there. It's less than a gold, probably like a silver or a couple of copper pieces. I don't have to go out and buy it. It's like, oh, I have it in this drawer on my bedstand or something. I don't want to keep scissors next to my bed. Maybe just in case my <laughs> wife upsets me. Midnight um, knitting. <laughs> midnight knitting. You knit with scissors? <laughs> I don't know. You cut the thread. <laughs> Why does all my knitting always fall apart <laughs> at the end? It's always destroyed. But you can do... Um, there's a variety of things. You can, of course, if you pay zero gold, it's just like the normal game. You pay for what you get to. You pay three gold a month. It's everything that's one silver or less. Ten gold, it's one gold or less. A hundred gold a month, ten gold or less. Or a thousand gold per month, uh, uh, 25 gold or less. Uh, this is interesting because it helps, again, get rid of that minutia. I always do this for my players can just like, you know, now we own a house, all right? We pay, everyone pays a thousand gold a month and now we have this mansion. I've had, I had a, a whole campaign where players did that and they had this awesome mansion and did some cool things in the story. I just really appreciate this rule set Pause provided. I like it because um, it gives more foundation for the flavor of a character and the backstory of a character. Like the one is you live in a mansion. The other one is you're living in common rooms of taverns. It just helps slightly flesh out the background of a character. Right. Nothing's worse than having to track down how much your meal costs or how much that ta- that tanker to veil costs. Uh, house rule I have is that except in extraneous circumstances, you do not need to keep track of food and water. If you're like trekking through a desert or like a forest for a really long time and it's very obvious that you're going to be outside of civilization for a very long time, then you have to keep track of it. But for the most part, you don't have to worry about how many food rations you have on you and things like that. I do the same thing. If ever food comes in, it's just kind of like part of the story. Like they want to go to a tavern to talk about their plans and they order something. It's never like, well, you guys didn't eat for the third time today, so you're feeling pretty hungry. Oh, my gosh. Though that almost bit me in the butt once. I had them poison. Well, actually, in the end, they weren't poison, but they thought they were poison. And so in in the morning, I made sure to say, uh, so you guys had breakfast and stuff? And they're all like, yeah. <laughs> One guy just didn't say yeah. So later on, when they found out they're poison, he's like, I didn't eat breakfast. I didn't eat breakfast. <laughs> I had to argue with him whether or not he ate breakfast just because he didn't say. And then, you know, what? it did catch me by surprise when I was playing a campaign of yours. We weren't tracking food and all that. We went into a desert and then also had to keep track of water. I was caught off guard. I didn't even think about it. So I think you gotta, you gotta, your players got to be careful to remember that that's a house rule. They got to remember if you are in a desert or something, you got to keep track of it. It caught me off guard. I warned you guys when you went in there. <laughs> We're not very smart. I'm not very smart. Maybe other people are, but I'm not. 
It's not like I springed it on you guys. Like, oh, look, you're dehydrating. No, you certainly didn't spring it on us. I just didn't remember that that was the rule. Mm. And when we were there, you were like, you all die. You're like, what are you guys doing for water? I'm like, oh, yeah, we need to do something for water. <laughs> um, a rule I have is uh, this is kind of a flavor rule only. Uh, magical healing. Uh, healing works by accelerating the rate at which someone heals. What I mean by that is you still get your scars from healing. If your arm is cut and uh, your bicep's hanging out, when you get healed, sure, you can now, you save the bicep, but there's going to be a nice big scar there. Uh, and a restoration spell or or um, yeah, a restoration spell that can like regrow limbs, that will fix scars. I had a player who was castrated. Oh. <laughs> Finding a, a potion of regeneration was very exciting later on in the game, right? Somebody else lost an arm. Uh, a, a person lost a finger and a toe. When they got restoration, uh, they didn't even think about it. I said, your toe and your finger goes back. He's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's just something I thought was interesting. Uh, it allows players. I think scars are cool. So Another house rule I use is that uh, I really like prestige classes. Uh, they're very flavorful for the most part, which I really like. But prestige classes are intentionally bad. Their prerequisites are very, very nutty sometimes. They don't have the greatest, you know, power scaling. They come in at weird times during your leveling progression. So a house rule I have is that if you want to take a prestige class, you can communicate that to me and we can work on the prerequisites to see if we can make it something that fits more into your build. Because no matter what, if you take a prestige class, usually the character's going to end up weaker for it. But I don't want to completely gut your character because... You're a fighter, and for some reason you had to drop two of your skill ranks and dance so you could be a duelist. Right. <laughs> Listen, you say they're very flavorful. Well, they sure generate a lot of salt for me over here. I am with you. I think they're weak. Uh, they're exciting flavor-wise, but they just, I think, can take too much out of Now you have a weak guy. Now you have the glass jaw. Or you got the student of war who wants to dump dexterity, but needs to take dodge to take the class, and dodge requires you to have 13 dexterity, and why, Paizo, why? <laughs> Such a fun class. Right. I got another flavor one. Resurrection sickness. Uh, no, this doesn't mean that your minion is asleep when you spawn it in Hearthstone. <laughs> uh, this this is uh, when somebody comes back from the dead and they come back to life. There's a period of a week where they are uh, they have resurrection sickness, which is a condition that I've made up. Um, obviously, it has plenty of influence from other things. <laughs> but the creature is barely able to speak, perceive, or have coherent thought, steadily gaining back their senses and capabilities over a week. I just like the idea that death is more permanent and raising someone from the dead requires a lot of effort, both on the people that are going to go on an adventure to try to figure out how to raise you from the dead and you when you come back. You're very vulnerable. It's yet to make this happen, but I'm sure a case will come up where like everyone sacrifices and they're real rough to resurrect you, but then you wake up and there's no one there to take care of you. They've maybe even sacrificed themselves to bring you back, and now it's like, oh, now what do you do? Uh, it can lead to some interesting stories, but uh, I just like that flavor. I like it. My campaigns don't usually go to the point where resurrection is a very big point, but um, I, I really do like the flavor of that. And in addition, uh, spells like Raise Dead, Resurrection, and other spells that raise characters from the dead uh, got to be run by me before you can select them. And in the world, they're very hard to find. You won't, like, I don't know what, Raise Dead's usually a level 5 cleric spell. If They have to probably find, like, a level 6, 7, 8, 9 cleric who has that spell. It's going to be rare, like, only one or two people in the world know how to do it. Uh, I don't like Raising Dead to be very easy. I don't I don't want the idea, the old D&D ideas, like, cut off his thumb, put it in a pocket, we'll get him saved and we go back to town. Mm-hmm. When we've had people come back from the dead in our story, they've been big story moments and required a lot of power. Uh, I think one required bargaining with a god, uh, Bahamut, and Bahamut made a deal and then brought the person back from the dead. Not just wait until tomorrow to prepare a different spell yeah. in your slot. and Because then it's almost like death becomes, Ech, and I don't want people to jontron about death. <laughs> 
it needs to be something that's you know, exciting, terrible, sad. But I still like to give people the opportunity if they really, really like their character and everyone was really connected to them, they can go out on a quest to go bring it back to life. My next house rule hasn't come up yet. I just kind of threw it out there and I haven't seen anyone utilize it. Uh, I waive some of, similar to the prestige class, uh, wavering some of the prerequisites. For some of the regular classes, I waive the alignment restrictions they have. I find the idea that a monk has to be lawful strange. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that like they get their key just from being lawful, that's a strange idea to me, and I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that, that that has to be the case in my games. Similarly, I don't like how a barbarian can be not lawful. Yeah, obviously when they're raging, they're not being lawful. That doesn't mean they can't be lawful other times right. in their life. Right. And usually, like, alignment's that weird thing where it's a gray area, and how much did your character infer your alignment, vice versa, but it's just something to so my characters don't feel like that's not an option. Or yeah. excuse me, my players don't feel like it's not an option. You're not limiting your players. If they have a really cool idea that happens to not be allowed by the monk or whatever, they can still do it. Well, you know, if it's a cool idea, let them do it. We're all about saying yes as GMs. When we, when, uh, except for as you say, when it's appropriate to say no. But as mm -hmm. much as we can, we'd like to say yes. Yes. Uh, so look, you just said it now. Uh, I, I have a thing where I have languages in game have some equivalents over in the real world. Uh, common is English, Elven is French, Orcish is German, Catfolk is like a Native American mix, Dwarven's an Irish-Scottish mix, Aslanti is a Chinese and Japanese mix. And the reason I did this is I actually had a character who came in from our world. So I had to think, how do they understand what's going on? And if they are bilingual, how does it happen? Can they talk maybe with other races? He, he was, uh, he could, I don't know what you call it bilingual, where you can read another language, but that language happened to be um, Hebrew. So it didn't come up too much. I didn't have anyone that was really Hebrew. Um, but I actually just kind of worked out interestingly because I like to put in songs and things in my game. If you guys heard from Trailblazers, uh, you'll hear way later towards the end of the Trailblazers uh, uh, first season. They talk about uh, someone sings and they sing in French. And so it's a French song uh, so or Elvish. So I, I could use a French song and it still kind of fit in. They weren't like, this is a weird sound. What language is this? It's Elvish, <laughs> shut up. Elvish sound like they like black and white striped shirts and <laughs> oh, no. other stereotypes. <laughs> <laughs> they don't necessarily have the culture of the language. <laughs> Another house rule I use. Um, actually, this is one I'm still still a work in progress for me. I don't have a exact rule to replace it with. But as written, I really don't like the use magic device rules. You cannot take a 10 on use magic device checks. They're really rough. If you listen to our episode on... Um, on um, skills, or two episodes on skills. I'm going to use magic device. It's a lot of rules. It's complicated, and it's pretty restricting. Yeah. Um, the DC is a flat 20 to activate any wand, which I find weird that a level 1 wand is the same difficulty to activate as a level 4 wand. Like I said, I don't have exact rules to replace it yet, but I want to make some sort of scaling difficulty with activating wands and then somehow enable the ability to take 10s with wands. Yeah, that'd be a good thing to work on. You should uh, let us get back to us when you figured out uh, what a good way that way other people can use it, our listeners can use it. I mean, use measure device is the way it is because it's an inherently powerful ability. It's a really, it's probably the most powerful skill there is. It lets you basically become a spellcaster if you have enough right. money. Um, but I'm basically okay with non-spellcasters casting spells because that's the main thing I don't like about it. Spellcasters are like, we we're over here with our spells and we can use wands without use magic device because we also have spells. We got spells on spells all day over here. Whereas <laughs> the martial character are like, well, once I hit level ten, I can have like a sixty percent success rate with activating a wand, and I don't like. I want to give access to magic to everyone. Hey, bro, I heard you like wands. Yeah, exactly. I heard you like spells. <laughs> So that made sure you have some spells in your wand so you can spell while you spell. <laughs> uh, 
you talk about alignments, I have an alignment rule uh, where people cannot pick neutral evil or chaotic evil characters. And this, the reason this is a rule is because as soon as you play my game, you know this is, the, is true. But I am super open to anyone who's experienced mm -hmm. playing any character. I used to even say not lawful evil, but I let new players do lawful evil if they want. Just because a new person playing an evil character almost always just does stuff that conflicts with the party all day, 24-7. Yay, fun. Uh, but experienced players, I totally let them do it if they want to. If they just have some way of convincing me or I've seen them play, I'm convinced that they won't cause trouble. And long as people, to make sure that everyone's still having fun. I don't flat out restrict those in my game, but I basically say the same thing. If you're going to play an evil character, it better be for a very good reason. You better have a pretty deep backstory as to why. You better have very good character motivation. And understand the alignments, like, Chaotic evil would be okay if you do it right. right. Bender from Futurama is chaotic evil. He's a fun guy. I'd like him in my party. <laughs> He's not. He cares about his friends, though. Right. And I, I myself, uh, I guess this is something that I guess is a house rule. Yeah, it's a house rule. It, we'll just move into this one. Uh, I'll do a double must steal, steal one from Christian. <laughs> I use the alternate rule set in Unchained for alignments, which pretty much means you start out a neutral neutral. And as you play the game, your alignment changes and it changes by points. You know, you get points towards uh, good or evil and points towards lawful or chaotic. And so, and, and they vary. So if you do something that's super evil, you get three points towards evil. I mean, it's a little bit evil, it goes one point. So you'll very quickly, if you're a chaotic evil character, very quickly you'll turn to that. But it allows players to kind of, they, the alignment will reflect them instead of them reflecting the alignment. I like that. The point thing uh, is a little minutiae, it feels to me. I don't know how it exactly works. I haven't read it. But I like the idea behind it, certainly. It's, it's very simple. It's even, it's just like, it's all subjective. They don't like you do these things and then you total up these numbers. It's just like it takes three points to go to the next step. So if you do something that's really, really evil, you get three points and now you're on the next step towards evil. Is that something you would announce to the player or is that something you as a DM do behind the screen? Uh, I myself do it as a player. As a GM, I let players do it, but I, I think it's super open that if you uh, GMs who are a little more controlly want to have control, it's up to them. But as as myself, I let my players do it uh, themselves. And it's at the end, like when I've done it myself as a player, I've asked, you guys think I did anything um, particularly lawful today or, or more evil? And they'll say, oh yeah, definitely, Caleb, that was evil. Or, I don't know, today was pretty much you didn't do anything. And so I didn't get any points, just stayed at neutral or stayed at good, wherever it was. While we're on the point of alignment, something else I forgot to mention with my in my alignment set of house rules. Paladins can be neutral good and chaotic good. Similarly, uh, anti-paladins, if you ever have to play one of them for some reason, have to please don't. Um, you don't have to be chaotic evil because that literally makes no sense. Uh, you can be neutral evil or lawful evil. Oh, that's good. Same reasons as what we were just talking right. about earlier. I used to have a rule about diagonal movement. I used to, you, normally the rule is on a grid of, you know, the one foot squares or one inch squares, should I say, that represent five feet. Uh, if you move diagonal, it counts as five, spa five spaces of five feet of movement. If you move diagonal a second time, it's now 10 more spaces for a total of 15 in those two turns. Um, and, it, and it alternates back to five, 10, five, 10, mm -hmm. five, 10. And I just wasn't aware of the rule when I played for like my first year. And so we would diagonal move just each was just five, like it was moving straight left or any other direction and uh and I, I i go back i'm now back to now that i know the rule i have the rule in place but i just want to mention it because we didn't have a lot of problems that happened uh i had a regular size mat maneuvering was still cool there wasn't any point like wow well you just maneuvered across the whole field in five seconds uh, i thought it ended up being cool but i do want to ask this question i'm not sure about this christian you can let me know does this count for the radius of a spell if a radius is 10 feet in all directions do you have to say well the first one's five feet and the next one is 10 feet 
Only, only if you're going diagonally. Oh, so you do have to do that for spells. Yes. Uh, does that include also for range? If you have 20 feet of range, is that only two squares or three squares? Diagonally, yeah. Okay, good to know. I did not know that. That does just how distance is counted. Regardless of what, in Pathfinder, it says that's how you count distance. If you're going diagonally, it's five ten feet, then 10 feet, then five feet, then 10 feet. Right. I, I've gone back and forth on this one. I'm honestly considering of nixing it and going what you originally did and not even considering the five feet, then 10 feet. Everything's just five feet. Just because everyone gets confused with it. Everyone's like, wait, so what's the second diagonal again? How many feet have I moved? And it, no one can get a grasp on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I might keep it for spells, though, because it ba- helps balance spells a little bit. There's cool stuff you can buy. I have yet to, I only did it for like a, a custom encounter I did, but you can buy. They're like almost little templates and you put them over the mat and it shows you like if it's a five foot burst spell you use this template and you can mm. see exactly what it is instead of having to calculate it those are interesting i made custom one for a boss fight where like this area you know is about to be hit next turn so get out of the way uh that's the time i used it but it'd be an interesting thing to use as just a spellcaster. and something that this affects that was one of the rain reasons i want to change it back to everything's just five feet is that it gimps reach weapons because for some reason if someone has a reach weapon it's like oh i can't approach them unless i go at a diagonal because their weapon doesn't reach 15 feet so i just oh, I, I just that. got this open square in the reach weapon threatened area that people can just walk up and smack you that makes absolutely no sense all right christian we'll find out what your next one is right after this quick word from our sponsors we're our own sponsors we are our own sponsors <laughs> <laughs> and our sponsors and partners the, the the ad you'll hear at the end of it is just from a partner who doesn't pay us but we just are friends <laughs> all right guys roll initiative does it have a weak spot, and how many feet away is it from it? Has anything in Pathfinder had a weak spot yet? And while we're on the subject, can a dragon fit in the room we're fighting in? Well, it depends. They <laughs> wouldn't have Crisco in their equipment list? Yeah, I picked it up. <laughs> Last time we were in town, I grabbed it. Oh, well, yeah, then definitely. Absolutely. Well, Kev, I have a question. On my character sheet, it says you gave me half a million gold last episode. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I, I got that, too. I, I wrote that down. <laughs> if we could not be children for, like, three seconds, I would like that. So pretend that you're having fun for once. But they entertain themselves pretty darn well. I shoot it in the face. Of course you do. Without any diplomacy, it's right in the face. You shoot it. It's a Medusa, you said? Yeah. Yet another copyright infringing, non-original <laughs> character. I, I'd like to roll a sense motive on the DM, please. The GM, I'm sorry. I don't want to not copy copyright. DM, man. We just got not. Wow. Don't you want to get us copyright strike? You guys have iTunes here? Obviously, you have Tolkien here, so... <laughs> Tolkien came across and his elves and his dwarves. <laughs> Did you like what you just heard? A couple of guys hanging out, role-playing? That was Trailblazers, our actual play podcast. You can find it every Tuesday, right here on the Trailblazer Network. Hope to see you there. That's it. Rocks fall. Everyone dies. Everyone rolling their character. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling this is going to take a lot longer than 10 minutes. Okay, now we're back. Uh, my next rule is one that I've actually used for a really, really long time. It was spawned by the need to buff rogues mm-hmm. uh, because flanking is quite difficult. You have to be on the exact opposite side of a creature in order to flank them. And it kind of made flanking a pretty difficult option for a lot of people. I still get confused a little bit if I'm precisely flanking against bigger creatures. So I changed the rule to that to the... I changed the rules so that's something more that you can think of logically than have to think of with a grid. The idea of flanking is that they can't keep their eyes on both of you at the same time. Right. My rule on flanking is is that if you and another character are greater than 90 degrees apart around a someone they're flanking, you are flanking them. Hmm. 
So this would translate to if you were, you know, normally you have to be standing 180 degrees around someone to flank them. Now you basically have those two spots next to where you're standing to now stand. Okay. So basically it's something you can eyeball now. Could they realistically see both of you at once? If no, then you're flanking them. I actually don't use that rule and will continue not to use the rule. I think flanking's okay. Um I still I think the unchained rogue is, is fine the way it is. Though that that's something that it didn't fix. The two rogues don't flank differently. But um I still like it the way it is. It's sometimes confusing with bear creatures, but I, I still think it's okay. I don't think it needs changing. It was originally something that only rogues were going to get access to. The rogues count as like an extra space of flanking because they're better at it, but then they made the unchained rogue, so right. I just kind of kept it ever since. I might like it better if you made it better bigger if you made it bigger than ninety degrees. I might like it better. What do you mean? It is. If you're No, if you made it like maybe they had to be better than hundred degrees or hundred and twenty. But then that's hard to eyeball. Well, the main that's reason true. for ninety degrees that you, you <laughs> get can, out your protractor, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. You can <laughs> see like if you're are you bigger than an l around the clock then yeah i need one less thing to bring i don't need a a protractor and one of those like maritime rules of the ball is hanging off the string i don't need this stuff here everybody bring your (laughs) abacus all right let's talk about uh, a rule i have about swift action economy you know how you can change your standard to a move I now make it so you can change your move to a swift. So you can have two swift actions. I have yet to see uh, this be broken. I haven't seen like a paladin that's like, I'm going to heal twice and oh no, the entire game is broken. I haven't seen that happen. We did go over in the advanced class guide uh, some things that are really reliant on swift action economy. War priest was a big one. Yeah, they, so they would love this rule. <laughs> they would, um, but... I think it's okay because it's still sacrificing. If the war priest does all these things to buff himself but still never move to get to his opponent, I'm cool with it. So I haven't seen I'm, – I'm keep an eye on it, but I not bad enough yet for me to get rid of it. I like it, and I it makes sense to me. If I can do something very quickly with my swift action, why can't I do it in the time it would take me to do a move action? Um, this is more of a philosophy than an actual, like, in-stones rule, is that I don't like – player characters rolling dice against each other Mm -hmm. pvp i don't find fun that's not supposed to be the focus of the game it can be that's the kind of game you're running but i think the focus should be on the actual problems presented to you and not each other so i basically say minimize rolling against pc versus pc try to role play as much as possible and of course be reasonable like don't be like oh well i would never believe that because you this and that and when the person has a really high bluff score like you're gonna have to be able to concede that they will be able to lie to you sometimes Mm -hmm. which is kind of like what the problem that the dice are supposed to resolve that you can't say like you can't just say what's happening you can't just dictate the story however you want but i like to give more control back to the players because i trust them with interactions such as that right this is one i fundamentally disagree with christian on and we're going to break up over it's gonna be a hard breakup i'm gonna kick him out of the house it'd be very terrible uh i i let my players do it all i want i think there's interesting things that can come from it i think if you have an antagonist, you don't want the you don't want them rolling against dice each, against each other. But my solution for that is to not let the antagonist play, not restrict the rest of my players. So I, I let people roll dice against each other. When it comes to uh, we talking about um, like bluff and stuff, bluff and stuff. Our <laughs> new book coming out very soon. Hope you guys buy it. it Could be on every shirt. Bluff and stuff. Um, that sounds like a, a Dr. Seuss book. 
bluffing stuff. <laughs> it sounds like something you'd find in Urban Dictionary. Yeah. Oh boy, let's not, let's not give it the definition. Um, the way I, I, I let players lie, if they're able to lie to each other, if someone doesn't know something, and the other guy tells them something different, the way it wasn't actually beat, if they believe it, they believe it. But if it's something that the player does have foreknowledge of, I, I let them uh, roll the bluff, and then the other player rolls the sense motive. But they have to keep to what the results say. Exactly. They cannot continue to doubt. So I'll let players like, you can roll bluff, you can roll sense motive if you want, but you have to know that if you... You have to go with whatever role that says. If you want to just continue to still be wary of it, don't roll sense motive. So that way, if they want to continue to still like, I'm not sure if it's true or not, they don't roll the sense motive and they just keep that in their heads. But if they roll it and it says you believe them, now they have to believe them. Right. Like I said, it's not a hard ban and it's something you have to judge as a case by case basis. But I think going into it, the mindset should be that we probably shouldn't set up the game in such a way that we're constantly lying to each other and fighting each other and stealing from each other. That goes with why I don't let uh, unexperienced players play evil. Yeah. characters uh i think another one that's similar to that is intimidate's probably another one that you'll oh, you might have to go to listen that's what the role says you're intimidated intimidate is written as a terrible terrible skill yeah yeah because it's just the difference between when you're in combat and you roll intimidate against someone they just get a minus two if you succeed right, right. they they're shaken that's the condition they get but if you're out of combat and you use the intimidate skill they're they have to act friendly to you for like 20 minutes they have to they move their disposition toward you to friendly and do what you say. So just, you know, if you just intimidate someone, suddenly they have to do what you say. But the second you draw a sword against them and you intimidate them, they're like, oh, I'm kind of scared a little bit. I just hate the <laughs> right. differential between those two. I'm OK with it because the friendly one, they still if it's things that will result in harm to them. They get a, a new save, or there's some, there's some rules. I forget exactly. Read our skill, uh, listen to our skills, read our skills episode. <laughs> get it, transcribe it, put it online, then read it. Uh, listen to our skills episode. It, we talk about intimidate, but I think like if it's gonna put them in danger, they don't necessarily have to do it. There's some rule there, right? And I like the idea of like if you're in combat, you are in the mentality of I'm gonna fight in the middle of the battle. You know you're gonna die either way. You're already in that mentality. So if the guy's gonna try to intimidate you, you're gonna be shaken, but you're still like I'm still in a life and death situation that hasn't changed. He's already he's, he threatened me by pulling out. A sword just because we haven't rolled initiative doesn't mean it's not a life and death situation though that's true i, I don't like i don't like the barrier being the initiative role there that's a good point make a good point uh keeping in realm of terms things i disagree with christian on and this is something I, I disagree with like the entire pathfinder community on is i have special rules for what can is uh considered a surprise round what can instigate a surprise round the rules as written is the opponent has to have no awareness of you at all for you to initiate a surprise round I allow people to initiate a surprise round if your opponent does have awareness of you under other circumstances, if in some way you can surprise him. If you guys are super friendly, if you're your best friend, whatever, and then you pull out a gun and shoot him for whatever reason, I don't know, maybe you figured out, oh no, he betrayed you sometime back and he has no clue you know, I'll let you get that one surprise round off. Whereas rules are written, you still wouldn't get it. As soon as there's a... a this whole thing came to me when I, I tried to do something. Uh, I was under the impression that you'd get the surprise round. And so I instigated an attack in one of your campaigns and he ended up dodging calls all these problems and i found out there was no benefit to to, to trying to surprise him at all and i feel like there should be and i'm gonna charge somebody before uh they're ready they should get a disadvantage in some way and the whole because like if you go down to the bones guys let's get it's caleb's nitpicky hour if somebody charges you rules is written like surprisingly like there's no reason to and i just do it because i'm a jerk uh it wasn't surprising uh i know i'm talking about in your case i'm okay. just giving a a random thing like in your case the guy's ready for battle at any moment yeah he's ready i understand that if with this rule i probably wouldn't give it a person surprise around in that case um if you uh if you charge you're doing an, an, an uh, uh 
uh, antagonizing action, dice are rolled for initiative. And if he beats you, he can move out of the way. Which doesn't make sense to me is he's um, I'm charging, which is causing him to move. But then we roll, he wins initiative. He moves, I haven't even started to charge yet. The answer to that is, oh, he saw you twitch or whatever. And that just kind of bothers me. Uh, charging is even a bad example. If I have a gun up to somebody's head and I'm going to pull the trigger, that's even less. You don't really, with the charging, you can see me coming from across the field to move, right? I get that. But with the pulling of the trigger... It's like right next to your face, but he still gets to move out of the way, even though what made him and do that was me pulling the trigger. That like is like a, a time space continuum mess up. That might mean once the gun's pulled, you might even roll initiative. Right. That that raises the question of how was he aware of you when you pulled out a gun and were pointing at him already and then right. he's still not ready to fight you. Right. And so a- it's a weird thing. And I agree with you on this. I hold the same idea in that if you do uh, something that is sufficiently surprising, it should be a surprise round. And something that I actually don't like in Pathfinder is that there's specifically a feat that lets you do something like this. It's like it's like betrayer or backstabber or something. Like you make a diplomacy check against someone and if you succeed, you can immediately take a surprise round to stab them if you're close enough. Mm. And I don't like the fact that like you need a feat to do that. Like that's the idea of like this feat exists so you can't do it unless you have this feat, guys. You can't ride a bike unless you take the ride the bike feat. Right. And I'm asking for arguments here. This is all up to the discretion of the GM and the players, right? There's no mm-hmm. hard and fast rule here. Pizer made a hard and fast rule system, so I understand why it's there. But here we gotta judge about it and see what happens. If you're both in a tense situation, somebody tries to get the jump on the other guy, you're not gonna get it because you're both tense and ready for the other guy to stab, uh, shoot the other, hurt the other person. So you gotta make that the whole uh, Pathfinder judgment. wasn't set up as an intrigue game where right. you got spies waiting to stab each other in the back and stuff. Right. So if you want to do something like that, you have to look in the house ruling initiative and surprise rounds, possibly. Here's one that we both have. Uh, we both use the 20-point buy system. There's a, We talked about in our character creation episode a bunch of ways to generate ability scores. Uh, I use the 20-point buy system. I think it's fair. It makes the most balanced and fun player uh, characters. Normally, I use 20-point buy myself. If I'm going for lower power uh, levels in general, I'll use a 15-point buy. Right. Yeah, I turned you like a low fantasy or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But I think 20-point buy is a good way to deal with uh, the way CR works. It also makes sure I had a problem early, early in game where one guy just rolled better than everybody else's ability scores and was outshining everybody. I don't want that in my games. I want everybody to, to feel fun, like they're equally contributing. And there are, you can look up tons of house rules and how people do ability scores. Or there's people that make a grid out of all they roll, and then you can borrow from your friend's grid. And then there's people that say, like, Everyone's got an array of numbers they could pick, and you can put those into any ability scores. Or, there, there's tons of them. Or I want you to feel really special. We're doing a fun game. Everybody gets plus six to whatever, uh, to each of their things after they roll. Oh, and that was at really high scores. Just fun, interesting ways for what kind of game you're running. But like base is, base thing for most of my campaigns, 20 point buy is what I usually go for first. Uh, similar to character building, uh, hit dice. Instead of rolling, uh, you can just take the average before you roll. And so if you have a D10 hit dice, I'll just give you the five. Technically, it's not the average. Average is 5.5. But I give you the average. You understand what I mean by average, the middle one. Um, and if you want to, if you roll a one, you get to re-roll, but a step lower dice. So if you're a D10 uh, hit dice and you roll a one, you can roll it again, but now it's at a D8. This um, I have changed after the over uh, the years of GMing. I have made this when I go into a campaign. There's always a set rule now. It's either going to be one if you have to take the average, or you have to take three fourths, or you have to take full. Because I've had too many people lose character sheets. I've had too many people forget how they're rolling for hit points. Oh, yeah. It'll be like the third level up they had, and I'll see them rolling a dice, and I'll be like, "What are you doing?" And they're like, "Don't I roll for HP?" And I'll be like, "No." Oh my goodness, please, someone. <laughs> so now. If I start the campaign and say, all right, everyone's taking average, 
if there's ever a discrepancy, I know exactly how many hit points you should have. Gotcha. I do the one because uh, similar to what you were talking about, the reason I have that one roll where you can re-roll is that way you don't have a wizard with zero health. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? I like people to, to at least have a chance. They're not going to get the 10 now. It's impossible. Maybe they roll the eight, you know, and they'll be okay. Not that wizards have a D10 hit dice. I have a, a rule for the natural 20. Uh, if you get a natural 20, no matter what, whether or not you confirm the critical hit or fail or, or fail and fail to confirm the critical hit, you get the max damage you could do. So if you do 1d8 plus 4, if we roll the 20, regardless of confirming or not, you do 8 plus 4, 12 damage. Plus, and then if you can, and if you get crit, you get to roll the other three. I really like this, actually. I like this a lot. I might take that and call it my own and make my own podcast. And <laughs> <laughs> Critting is still cool. You're still rolling the dice three more times. If it's the 1d8 plus 3 and I get a 2 times 2 crit weapon, now they're rolling 2d8 plus 6 plus 12. I used to use the critical hit and critical miss deck, but now I play mostly online, so I don't. But whenever I do play in person, I do use the critical hit and critical miss deck. They're very interesting. They're kind of fun things. Um, I wouldn't recommend doing it unless you had a very good grasp on the rules or have hero lab because a lot of them uh, talk about ability damage and those require a, a lot of changes to your sheet um and there is a rule that my uh, the enemies they cannot use a critical hit in this deck unless they're a boss uh so the reason i do this is because i don't want the goblin level one goblin to roll a critical pull the card that is the behead card there's one card that just instantly kills your opponent. It's beheaded. I don't want you to be beheaded by a goblin because he <laughs> having to roll that weird. Uh, but if they fight a boss, he does use a critical hit deck. But then he also does use the critical miss deck if he does fail. Uh, this is one I fundamentally disagree with uh, Caleb on. One, I disagree with critical missing being anything other than just an automatic miss. I think just missing is enough to be a detriment in combat. Uh, I do, I've tried them before and I very much didn't like them. I found the critical hit deck to be way too powerful and rewarded mm. crit fishing builds way too heavily. You know, it's it's you're not wrong in, in the case that there has been times where I'm like, this is weird. Like, it's just like very strange or sometimes like you miss and then you get the thing that says hit the, you attack the creature next to you, closest to you, ends up being an opponent. So it's like, well, then your miss didn't even matter. You kill them anyway. And especially ones like that. I don't like the idea of hurting other players when you do bad. Because again, that's already happening by proxy of you sucking. I used to do like you roll a one. I made you drop your weapon. I mm. stopped doing that really quickly. Um... An interesting thing I do do with this, though, to kind of help with, I think, some of the things that you you don't like about it is that if you if you have a critical hit, you can just save the card instead of using it. And if you have a critical failure, you can later on turn in that card and negate it. Ooh, okay. Almost like a resource. And something else that this, um, that especially with the critical miss, something else that it really gimps is two-weapon fighting is already terrible and horrible and a, probably one of the worst things in the game. And this nerfs it even harder because you're going to be rolling more ones on average. You're going to be stabbing yourself more often. Yeah, but you also roll more twenties more often as you get more critical hit deck rolls. And as you get Draws. more attacks over time, you're going to be killing. Good. That's the thing, though, like. When you roll the natural 20, you keep going. You, you hit them, you might kill them, you keep going. You roll the natural 1, you drop your weapon, and you stop, or you stab your friend, and you probably stop at that point. That's why I got rid of dropping your weapon, by the way. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons. Um, we both don't follow encumbrance rules. Another very common house rule. Encumbrance is a pretty weird... It's boring. It's stupid. Uh, still, again, if you're trying to carry a village by yourself, and you're not a level 20 war priest... <laughs> Um, I get very upset at you. Not War Priest. What was it? Was it War Priest? Yeah, it was War Priest. Uh, I, I'm not going to let you do that. So if you abuse it, just like with the arrows thing, 
I'm going to force you to use the rules. But I've had, I haven't had anyone abuse it. Yeah, um, unless everyone has Hero Lab, I never tell you the weight of anything you pick up. But I do just expect you to be realistic. And I especially don't use gold as weight. Oh, right. I just hate the idea that, like, when you do the gold as weight stuff, you got to turn in your gold for, like, items of equal value. And, and, the, and then carry around the golden monkey and then sell it back for all your gold. When, why go oh no, to, somebody stole your super spool, special jewelry and now you're 50 million gold less. Oh no. If it ends up being the same outcome, you, you, you got the money and you ended up spending the money. I don't see any reason to put steps in between that. Unless, of course, you're running a little fantasy campaign. Right. Uh, I use the background skills rule set as presented in Unchained, where it separates the skills into two uh, categories and gives you extra points to use in, in the uh, background skill category. Uh, you should look it up, and we're going to do a whole episode, or probably a couple episodes, on the Unchained book. We'll talk more about it there, but I just think it's a superior rule set to skills. It allows you to use some things that normally you wouldn't want to put points in. I like this. Um, in one of my most recent, or one of the campaigns that I'm writing up, I give everyone bonus skills every level to put into background-related skills. So I might want to look into just using that system instead. But like craft skills and profession skills that would be completely useless on most cases. I like being able to put points into that without having to actually spend my points. Yeah, and sacrifice other stuff you need, like perception. <laughs> Especially perception. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can add the custom pig kicking skill or the impersonation skills where you can always just sound just like Gary Busey because we always want to sound like him. You could be Gary Busey kicking a pig, get that get that feat where you can throw your voice and then make the pig sound like Gary Busey as he's being kicked. It's just, it's a perfect combination made available with the Unchained. Uh, I also use staggered leveling, which is presented Unchained. Each time you, uh, you before you level up, like let's say I would do at the end of each session, you get one third a level and you can choose to either put it into Again, we'll go over the exacts of this in Unchained, but you can either get your extra hit points or you can get your new feet or you can get your new skill points. And then when you get to your, you know, the final, like the, the, the last one third of your level or last one fourth, maybe it is, uh, you get all the other stuff that you get for leveling up. That way it's not just like I'm normal, I'm normal. Oh, I got all these cool new things. You slowly become cooler and you can pick what you want. Like, boy, I really need these hit points next. But you don't have to wait till you level up to get the hit points. I like the idea behind this, but I don't think I'd ever implement it for a reason as I outlined in the hit point episode or during the hit points house rule and that every time I start a campaign, someone asks what level we are and true. that someone's going to lose their character sheet and they're going to be like, oh, well, what did I level up last time? If I did do this, it would be regulated and that everyone gets their BAB mm-hmm. for their next level and everyone gets their hit points, not pick and choose, because I feel that would get to be a bookkeeping nightmare very quickly. We, uh, I noticed you, you mentioned that a lot, uh, that reason. Uh, I used to have the same problems, people forgetting things, but ever since I forced everyone, either Hero Lab or you don't play with me, I haven't had that kind of problem, people forgetting their sheets and stuff, and it's easier to keep track of stuff using this software. Um, but I certainly I understand that you wouldn't make people do that because you have to spend money in a program. But that is what I, I make people use. I guess you can make that a house rule to play with me. You have to have your lab. Uh, I have certain extra licenses. Uh, not that I'm saying I give those out because that's against rules. I just want to state that I have extra licenses and that could be useful for certain things. And that's as far as I'll go. Uh, <laughs> that was <laughs> back alley-ish <laughs> <laughs> underhanded i'm just stating i have more than one license i have many machines I, I need more licenses do i have more licenses than i have machines i like to have things available is all i'm <laughs> saying uh 
I have a custom familiar I made. We'll probably do like a whole episode where we do like custom. I made a bunch of custom things. Uh, but this is one that I just made and I like people using is I allow the mimic to be a familiar. I made a familiar version of the mimic that levels up with them and all that stuff. And so people can pick the mimic as the familiar if you really want a guy that can look like a treasure chest from Dark Souls at any given point. <laughs> oh, no, I remember this. You were asking for uh, ideas on how to implement this. Yeah, yeah. And it ended up being like use the crocodile because of the death roll. Yeah, I use something like that. And then you like use like that. something yeah. with grapple to mimic the mimic's abilities. Oh, yeah, I forget. Yeah, I did take the base of something and then customize it. And then, of course, what abilities does he have? Well, I looked at the mimic bestiary, gave him those abilities, tweaked them a little bit if they were a little too much, or allowed them to get progression wise. Like you get this ability when he's a level seven or whatever. I have some custom deities in there for flavor. Um, the one true god, which is that way of a Christian wants to still be a Christian in the game, <laughs> he can be. Uh, he's called the one true god. Is he necessarily one true god in Pathfinder? That's up for debate but that's what they worship him as uh and then for lore reasons for my campaigns i'll take place in the same world in which there is a god called quetzalcoatl which obviously is taken from the mayan god uh and he's the you know flying serpent dude the winged serpent feathered serpent however you want to call him and he's the god of true neutrality we read something that kind of uh epitomizes him any good deed must be balanced by a terrible one. That is the way of Quetzalcoatl and his followers. Among his followers, there are no loyal allies. Every loyal act must be matched by one of betrayal, and every good deed matched by one of evil. His followers are known to slay a man in his sleep, then on the way out, drop coins in a pauper's purse. Oh, that's a weird one. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Uh, but he was, in our big storyline, like that he was like bound, and to bind him, they had to separate his powers, and they made people become, they separated into four gods that they made. Uh, bah- Bahamut, or sorry, Baphomet. I call him Bahamut because I'm weird. Baphomet, Iomende, Serenrain, Zonkuthon. And through our story, whatever reasons, too much to explain here, but through the story, they were like killed and all that stuff. So you cannot worship those four gods anymore. They don't exist anymore. After Quetzalcoatl became unbound, he was like wiping out the memory of what happened to me. I've always been around. What are you talking about? I was me. So in the end, I've removed four gods and only added two, but hopefully you weren't super interested in those four, four gods. Now, is that only if they're playing in your, like, the universe of that one game? Correct, but I haven't run a game yet. I think I did once. I did one one one-shot once in my life. Right. Aside from that, they always are in this world. Okay. But certainly if I was doing one in a different world, I wouldn't have that rule. I might still let people worship the one true god or Quetzalcoatl if they wanted to, but I wouldn't restrict the four players. I don't play games that include more than three players. To me, three players is the perfect number to allow... uh, combat encounters not to last too long uh role playing not to last too long and to allow enough attention for each player that no one gets bored while other people are doing things and it allows me to handle uh make battles easier combats easier for the three people make it fair and interesting and fun and for a host of more reasons i'm looking to it just all i just find that it's more fun and it's like the perfect number for a pathfinder game i've in the past run more and that's what made me make this rule after a lot of experience i have i have made this rule I think three is a good number, but that's like my lower bound. But then my upper bound is four. It's three or four players. Um, I usually end up having to run with five, but I pers- I think the perfect number is four. That's my favorite number. I, I would consider four, but three really is where I like to be. And I'm a player. I'll be a player for other groups. Of- I play a game with you for five, but that's a good example. Nothing against you. It's just, again, this is why I don't like it. It's the nature of how many players there are. There are times when I'm like, well, I want to do something, but other people are talking by the time it gets around for me to do get to do what I wanted to do. It's beyond the time for me to do it, or it's just like I've forgotten about it, or whatever reason. There's a lot of times I'm just kind of sitting there waiting to do something while, while just out of politeness, I, I'm not going to be like, yeah, uh, shut up, uh, John. All right, so here's what I do, right? I, you know, you have to try to let everybody have their own uh, 
you know, an equal amount of time in. So I just, there has been times in your campaign that I've been bored or, or not going to do what I want to do by nature of how many players. It's expen- it's exponential past four players. Uh, once you go from four to five, that's when you start having problems. We have five. I don't know if I made that clear. We have five in yours. And then when you hit six, it's just beyond help. And mm-hmm. then when you hit seven, gods help you. <laughs> then when you hit eight, like, please go back in time and kill me when I was DMing for eight people. <laughs> we need to do an episode at some point talking about running very large games i think it can be done right i think uh, we, well, i could do the episode right now don't do it <laughs> we could talk about ways how not to do it i think we certainly have enough experience with that but that's something that you guys can look forward to in the future uh i have a, a rule i call couples counseling which is i don't host games that include couples this is a rule i've heard from a lot of people uh who's um I can't think of the one particular. I've heard from a lot of people. There's even a podcast I listen to that they mentioned this. I totally agree with them wholeheartedly. Um, just so that you can completely understand, I'm just going to read what I wrote down on my house rules page so I don't have to, so I make sure I cover everything. Couples, while there's nothing inherently wrong with them, present some unique problems. If a couple is in the midst of a personal flight, it will often deflect, negatively affect everyone's game. If a couple is there more to play with each other than to play the game, if one can't make a session, uh, uh, the other becomes lax and dull during that session. In a similar vein, if one couple is unable to make a session, often the other cannot make it. Often couples will take increased interest in each other's actions and motivations and disregard the other players. And that's just a small list of reasons. I think there's a, this is a pretty split thing in the community from what I've seen. There's a lot of people that agree with this rule, a lot of people that disagree with this rule, but obviously I fall uh, on, on that one side where I just don't like couples and too many problems in my personal opinion. It's a weird, it's, it, it feel bad doing it because a lot of the fun is like you want to do fun things with your with your partner who you love and want to be with all the time. So obviously we want to be with them doing this thing that you love to do if this is a big part of your life. I think this more boils down to player maturity. Although I do agree that couples are more likely to cause problems like this. But I th- that means boyfriend and girlfriend, right? Because I have a married couple. Mm-hmm. They're, they're married already. Like right. I, they have never been a problem ever because hmm. they don't have the drama of not being married. I think if, if I were running a longstanding campaign, I probably wouldn't want people who are just boyfriend, girlfriend playing together. Right. Uh, unless I thought it was really serious. I might run run shots with them, but I, I like the idea behind this. But I think it's something I had to judge more on a base by on base cases and not just uh, mm-hmm. lay line a whole rule for it. And, you know, I think I think you're very right. I might consider somebody who's married. It might be a maturity thing. And you just said something that just kind of sparked a note on why we might have different house rules here. The games I run are always very long. Not long as in an eight-hour session. Long as in we're going to be doing this for the next nine months. Right. Uh, and in which so, case, a problem like that might arise. They might right. run into turmoil. And when a problem occurs, it's real rough because we got to deal with it for nine months. Or if I have to kick somebody out, that changes everything for the next eight months. Now something's different, even though maybe we spent maybe we spent six months building up a cool thing with their story, and now I had to kick them out for whatever reason, or they're causing problems. It just a whole lot of things can go really wrong. Some long laid plans can be messed up. Uh, whereas I know you run shorter games. Right. Um, and the last one I have here is price to pay. And this is where I think that simply everyone needs to contribute in some way to uh, on game night. Whether or not it's uh, you have to one person gets brings up pretzels, the next person brings soda, one person is the ride for a couple people, one person's hosting it, and one person is GMing, they've all contributed in some way. Uh, there's there's some people, we talked about this in our uh, 201 episode, there's some people that like to do a bunch of stuff. I play with a GM who likes to have it at his house, he likes to GM, and he provides food and drink. 
He does all the stuff he wants to. I've offered. I keep trying to bring stuff. And it's always like he's always has stuff there. And that's cool. But I think uh, the way I like to do it is I like everybody to spread it out. Now, there's a lot of ways. There's a lot of approaches to coming with handling the cost of a game uh, of this game. A lot of people do like everybody brings a dollar or five dollars every week and they put it into the pot. And when they need to buy something like a new book or they want to buy soda or something, they take it from the pot that everybody's been putting in. Or there's rules where uh, the GM always doesn't have to put in for the food. So if there's a four players and one GM, the cost of the pizza is split between the four players. Uh, there's a bunch of ways to deal with the money. That's just a couple I've heard of. But this is the way I like to do it. I used to do, this was real messed up. I'm going to tell you why it's messed up. I used to do a fee to join. We all at the beginning put money in to buy all the stuff we needed. We just bought the books is what we needed uh, before we thought about Hero Lab, I think. Or maybe it was Hero Lab as well. Whatever. We all bought the books and we, we split the cost evenly among us. And then when a new person wanted to join, we just kind of came up with a number like, okay, let's make them pay one fifth of what we had to pay. Right. Or they, or they had to pay what each person paid. Okay. And that got split up among the group. But the reason that was weird is A, you don't have a lot of people joining your group. And B, it's like, it's weird to make up that number. Right. Like we all, it's not, it's not going directly to a book or being reserved for, Hey, later we're going to buy something with us. Maybe you could do that. It just was weird. And now when I play, there's actually not a lot of cost left for anyone that joins my game because I have all the books. I have an, I have ways for them to get hero lab. Um, there's just not a lot of cost anymore, so I don't need the money. That money doesn't need to be spent. And when I buy, when new stuff comes up, a new book, I buy it so I can keep it. If the par- if the group buys it, now that book is owned by the group. I like to own the book. That way, if when we do eventually split up, which is inevitable, the book is mine. I get to keep it. So I don't do that anymore. I've never done anything like this because uh, mostly when I play, it's either I'm playing at my own house and I'm hosting more like the situation you outlined and uh, or... We're playing at a public area like uh, the college is usually where we end up playing. Yeah, I mean, so, so we can't like. Uh, certainly, you're not bringing chips to share over a Skype game, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's certain things, but uh, yeah, this is generally yeah, for when you're all meeting together, like in somebody's house. Usually at colleges, there's like a food on campus. Everyone gets their own stuff. Right. They'll have their own meal plans and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, give me your meal cards. We're gonna buy something for the crew. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pile of nachos. Another house rule I have, and I've mentioned this in some previous episode, I forget which one, but I don't go back to fix things if we've already moved beyond it. What I mean by that is this. If you did a turn and then on the next turn you realize, oh, there's something, uh, I did that suboptimal, I could have done this thing, I forgot I had this other iterative attack, or, or you know what, I should have just casted this spell instead, I say, sorry, we don't go back as long as the other the next player's taking their turn. If you think about it, at the end of your turn, I'll let you undo it, as long as you didn't necessarily learn anything. You might have attacked a guy with a sword and learned he had DR. Well, sorry, you can't change your thing now. You've learned something. Uh, and I've had players complain about this before, and I said, uh, well, this works on your benefit as well. I mess up way more often than you guys because I have to remember like nine different monsters in this encounter and I constantly forget. Oh, like, oh, this guy has improved trip. What am I? I keep forgetting or he has charge or whatever. I keep forgetting to do all these things. Constantly, the players are benefiting from this rule because I won't go back on the monsters either. The only time I do do this is and now I remember it was player death and conflict. We talk about this. The only time I do go back is if uh, maybe it will change whether or not a player would survive or not. I will consider going back. Uh, it's not a give me, but I'll think about it. I can't even count the number of times I completely forgot a creature had DR or spell resistance. Oh, that, I always forget the DR. And you're like, wow, that's almost dead. Oh, that's just why. Got back 45 life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I won't go back and fix it, though. That's my fault. How am I supposed yeah. to remember it? Yeah. 
And if you want to hear more about that, you can listen to player types and conflict. And that's all the house rules that we can at least think of. We were talking about earlier. There's certainly ones I'm sure that are in our heads that we do that we just haven't written down. Right. Uh, maybe we'll mention those as they come up. But that's generally the rules. And you could take some of those you guys think we're good based on our reasonings. The ones that we argue over, you can see. I would like to hear. Please send us an email at tblazernetwork at gmail.com. Tell me where you side, uh, which one of us is stupid, which one is right. Mm-hmm. Um, it just is interesting to hear from you guys. And I, and I can't wait to hear some of your feedback. Like with every 200 series, we're going to end this series with a Buseyism. Gary Busey, we love you so much. And uh, we're going to do his, if you don't know what a Buseyism is, which if you don't know that, where have you been, guys? It's the most amazing trend-setting thing on the internet. The uh, Buseyism is where he does an acronym. And guys, honestly, if we're, we're going to have like an honest moment, me and you, you and me, heart to heart. They make no sense at all. They're really, really like... That's what makes them so good, though. That's what makes them treasures. They're treasures. And I wouldn't ask Gary Busey to change one bit. We're going to do the the Buseyism change since, you know, we're changing the rules. Change. Creating happiness and new guiding energy. Remember, nothing changes but the changes. You guys, you guys chew on that for the next week. All right, guys? You guys chew on that one. Let that love that let that grow on you. And I think you guys should change from that Buseyism. Thank you guys for listening. Class is dismissed. Pathfinder Academy is part of the Trailblazer Network. For other great Pathfinder podcasts, visit our site, tblazer.net. Want to get in touch? You can email us at tblazernetwork at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at tblazer Network. I've been Nicholas Laborde. Thanks for listening. The defendant who stands before us today has been found guilty. His crimes include burglary, larceny, assault, assault with a deadly weapon, taking thy lord's name in vain, and murder. Does the defendant have anything to say before us and before the eyes of God before he is hanged? I roleplay so I can be more like my heroes. Alright, you sons of bitches, Cut the sh- I'm Michael... Douglas, I'm an Academy Award winner, and I'm gonna run at them, brandishing this jeweled, hooked blade of power and unknown darkness. May God have mercy on your soul, young man. Here is softly speaking Sanskrit. We know why we roleplay. Why do you roleplay? Softlyspeakingsanskrit.com